I'm gonna level with you guys. This is probably one of the hardest games I've ever done rumination on. See, <laughs> like, I've had games that have less to talk about. Like, I did rumination on Doom. I did rumination on a text adventure game. But this is worse. Because Alpha Protocol is a choose-your-own-adventure. It is one of the most branching games I've ever seen in my life. Uh, that isn't literally text-based. And that means a lot of things can retroactively change, or be altered based on your choices, and... Well, let's just say that the labyrinthine ways to go through this game are extensive. I've only played through this game, counting for this rumination, a total of three times. And each time has been a significantly different experience. Although this time, at least, I knew what I wanted to do gameplay-wise. By the way, if anybody's curious, uh, sabotage, tech, aptitude, stealth, and pistols. Just pretty much full on. It's actually extremely satisfying to stealth through this game, which is good. A good mark in its favor. I will admit, some of the gameplay options are a little bit... Like, why would... Why do you want to specialize in the shotguns? Um, and of course, let's be honest, the game has bugs. In fact, when I say bugs, I didn't actually have any CTDs, so that's actually nice. But what I did have is a couple of moments where people just kind of started saying dialogue sequences clearly out of place, or incorrectly presuming choices I made in previous missions. Stuff like that. I'm not saying that's completely acceptable. It would definitely be a negative to gameplay if I was you know, reviewing this game. But at the same time, it is understandable. This was an incredibly ambitious project. Funny fact, though, and I found this out while doing the research for this one. As, like, Obsidian is just the cursed company, right? As of now, they've been taken over by Microsoft. We'll see what they do going forward. But I mention this because, whether it's because of bad management, as has been posited by ex-members, or if it's just because of coincidence, which has also been something that's theorized, the fact of the matter is, Obsidian just always ends up getting screwed one way or the other. In this particular case, they reached a point where the game wasn't really quite finished, and they wanted to do another polishing pass. You know, exactly what it sounds like. Go through, fix bugs, makes things better, etc. Sega said... You're right, this game isn't really finished. We're going to push back the release date, but we're not going to go ahead and fund the additional work that you want to do on it. Now, I understand that money is finite. <laughs> I get that. And I understand the idea that a company needs to be very careful with where it uses its, its finances and, and time. But I think that was the wrong call. Funnily enough, several of the developers of, uh, who worked on this game have openly said how much they'd like to do a... Uh, you know, a second, a sequel, Alpha Protocol 2. I'd be down for that. Beta Protocol, maybe? I don't know. But at the same time, they would still need to get uh, permission to do so from Sega. Kind of like how they'd get have to get permission from Disney if they wanted to do a KOTOR 3. So, not super likely, is what I'm trying to say. One thing I actually do think they did that was very smart in this game is that you, while you can roleplay extensively, you do not make your character... Your character, Thornton, is just, he's a prefab. He has a pre-existing history and a pre-existing stat, and he looks like that, and he's voiced by that. And I think that was a good move. If they make you just any old buddy, uh, I think that would have introduced too many additional variables, which frankly don't need to be here. Because this isn't about you being, you know, some specific exact character that looks and, and behaves, well, looks and feels exactly the way you want it to be. It's more like making them behave in the way you want them to be. Now, this, again, is kind of running into something. See, you can't fully roleplay. It really boils down to 
your tone, which you can role play between like suave, professional, you know, etc., and then your actions, which really boil down to good or evil. Now, at the same time, there is additional nuance in between those two axes. First of all, when it comes to the way you present yourself, you can, and I actually did this my second playthrough, you can change your tone based on who you're talking to. The implication being that your main character is, you know, literally talking differently, like he's just wearing a different mask depending on who he's talking to, which can lead to some very interesting circumstances. I'm told there's actually achievements regarding this. I didn't, I didn't see any personally, obviously, because, yeah. Um, but this is also interesting because the good and evil thing I mentioned earlier, because you can play someone who's evil, or you could play someone who is pragmatic. You could play someone who is good, or you could play someone who is pragmatic. Now, I know that sounds like I just repeated myself, but what I mean by that is you can take evil actions because it is the correct choice going forward, or you could take good actions because it is the correct choice going forward, or you could take evil actions because... <laughs> or you could take good actions because... Ah, right? You get that choice. It's actually probably one of the only other games that reaches the level of Dragon Age Origins for me. In term it doesn't quite get there, but it's still up there in terms of being able to decide how you want your character to be presented. So rather than being given the you know the massive array of options, you're given these axes in which d dictate both your actions and your tone. And from between those two, that's how we decide how we roleplay our characters. If you don't mind, I would I would kind of love to hear what kind of stories you guys had. Spoilers, you know, obviously, but what you know what kind of characters you played, and what kind of endings you ended up getting. I guess I should tell you guys. I actually wrote down a few uh, notes here, although my ending was pretty boring. I had a guide that was helping me through this time because I wanted to get a certain playthrough style. Uh, so obviously I let him live. I let Leyland live and was like, yeah, what's Pro Alpha Protocol? I've never even heard of that. And uh, ended up speeding away with Mina because, of course, I saved her. Marburg wasn't involved. He was very dead. I had ensured that. And I had no romances with anyone, so it was basically just me and Mina with a couple other few things at the end. And that's it. That's the ending I got. Now... First of all, I am almost amused by how many romance, really got to put that in quotes, options there are in this game. But I'm, I swear I'm not just bringing this up to rant about romance again in video games, but rather to mention about how that is on tone for the game. Because this isn't a Bond game, but it's close. This is like halfway, like we've got three types of spy fiction, loosely. We've got, you know, serious, realistic spy fiction, which is, dark and horrible and, and terrible and gritty and violent and awful. We've got Bond, which is kind of in the middle-ish, which is definitely leaning towards, you know, supervillains and fantastic plots and all that kind of stuff. I'm going to irradiate all the gold. And then we've got Absolutely Insane, which, if you're paying attention, also includes several Bond films. But what's funny is I have heard these three axes referred... Axis, the wrong word. Uh, three, these three levels, variances, referred to as... Bond Severe, Bond, and Bond Light. This one is actually kind of closer to Bond, but a little bit more realistic than that. From what I'm told, this is actually supposed to be even more realistic before um, Avalon ended up taking over the writing of this one. I don't know any specific details about that, unfortunately. But I mention that because that tone is throughout. I mean, first of all, 
Cold War, right? Post-Cold War, actually, to be slightly more accurate. And trying to start a new Cold War, which is, let's be honest, one of the points in history in which spying and what we usually mentally think of as spies in the modern era really became a thing. I mean, spies have been around since the begrillions of years ago, in the long, long ago, in the before times. But in addition to that, there's this entire idea of the you know the, the the trench coats and the code words and the masks and the infiltrations the assassinations all of that really got going as as a consequence of the real cold war actually to be slightly more specific that really got going in the wake of world war 1 got jump started in world war 2 and then became far more prolific in the cold war let's let's just be honest about that Again, spying has always been a thing, but never to this extent and never this type. So it's kind of like pirates. When we refer to pirates, we're referring to a very specific slice of history. Even though there have been pirates both before and after that point in time, that's what we're talking about. Same thing with spies, right? And that tone of trying to, you know, this whole era of trying to start a new Cold War for the sake of financial gain kind of makes a perfect degree of sense. But what's even funnier about that to me personally is, A, how incredibly stupid of a decision that was. I get the really strong impression Leyland's an idiot. I'll talk more about that in a minute. But, B, the fact that, well, it's it's basically the idea of what if we had all of the set pieces in place from the Cold War right before the Cold War. That's the premise we have here. It's just obviously it's being said in the modern era rather than back then. And we get the idea that there have been repeated previous alpha protocols as well, which kind of ties into something I'll be talking about in just a second here. Um, I, before I go any forward, I just want to mention that I didn't like the time delay on being able to pick choices. Something about that just kind of irritated me. I don't have a good reason why. It's just... Uh, it kind of irritates me in a few other games too. Telltale! Excuse me. Oh. Oh, I had something stuck in my nose there. Um, I looked at, I'm looking at my notes here. I, I jotted down a couple of names that I just didn't have anything to say about, like Shahid. Eh. You know, Surkov. Eh. I mean, he's there. <laughs> I don't really have much to say about several of these characters, which just kind of contributes to my problem because it's so hard to ruminate on this game. Like, I couldn't even do a lore run of this game because I'd have to play through the game like five times in order to do a proper lore run of this game. It's a choose-your-own-adventure game. What do you want from me? Go play it. Go go right now. Go buy it and play it. In all in total sincerity, before I really start getting into spoilery stuff, I do want to say I recommend this game. It is a buggy game. It is an older PC game. Not super old. We're talking like about 10 years ago at this point, something like that. So, you know, it doesn't have all the modern conveniences, and it might have a couple of issues running on Windows 10, but for the most part, it's still a good game. In fact, I would go so far as to say this is a great game, and I do recommend you go pick it up and try it. I want to talk about Leyland first, because he's actually probably one of the most well-designed, least interesting characters I've seen in a long time. As in an uninteresting character that is well-written. Let me explain what I mean by that. Leyland is a moron. He is what I like to call an empty suit. He is a typical business idiot who thinks of life in simplistic terms. You know, the kind of person that thinks, well, if we sold this and that made money then we can do this and sell all of those and make that times that money. Basic arithmetic. That's not how that works. I've actually talked about this several times myself. Everything comes down to economics for me, I swear. But my point being that that's, that's what I mean by the empty suit. I have met businessmen, managers and executives both, who think of life in such simplistic terms that legitimately believe that you can just go and do simple actions and get simple results. 
The idea, though, of someone like that, of an empty suit, nearly causing World War III, makes so much sense to me, it's actually kind of terrifying the more I think about it. Because it's not like he was some grandiose Bond villain with dreams of power and I shall shrink the Earth's surface and the waters shall rise. None of that crap. He's just a guy who wants some more money. He's greedy. That's all. And he didn't... I mean, he's obviously not a good person. In fact, he is incredibly amoral. But it's not like there was malice in him. It's not like he was sitting down thinking, I'm going to start World War III. No, he just wanted more money. He wanted to make more weapons sales. That's it. The world was nearly ended by, basically, your, your typical 90s businessman. And something about that really appeals to me. It's also one of the reasons why I don't kill Leyland. In fact, I've, I've actually never killed Leyland in any of my playthroughs. Yes, I keep poker chips on my desk. Don't ask. They're, they're good for keeping track of things. What do you want from me? So, <laughs> they're good props. I, uh, I never kill him because, well, first of all, it's far more satisfying to ruin him. But second of all, because it would kind of be like stepping on an ant. <laughs> Especially at that point, after having gone through the whole game and dealt with all the things we've dealt with, Leyland is nothing. Now, I want to talk about Mina next, because Mina is who watches the Watchers. That's her job. She is the one whose entire purpose and position is to make sure that the unaccountable agencies are accountable, which I get the point of of how that defeats that. But you can understand why such a position exists. In fact, to be blunt, Yancey is a perfect example of why someone like Mina exists. Because Yancey is exactly what happens when unaccountable agencies push things just a wee bit too far, or way too far, depending on how you define that. Um, and I mention that because, well, Mina is effectively, I'm trying to think how to phrase this, she's the center character of this game, in my opinion, which is funny because she can die. A lot of characters can die, that's not a spoiler, basically everyone can die, except for like five, I think, characters. But Mina is the center character, not just because she's the viewpoint character, not because the game is about her, but because she is at the apex of what this entire game is about, in my opinion. Those who watch the Watchers. The entire idea that within the spying community, because there is an actual community within the setting of Alpha Protocol, that there are checks and balances to help to keep it from going too far out of sync, from spiraling wildly out of control. So in case there's any situations where an organization's going out of its bounds or has lost its agents or there's rogues or whatever, people like Mina pull it in or break it down, depending on what's necessary. One of the ideas that I had when I was going through this is that G22's entire purpose is to be the dumping grounds for all the people who were burned after after anything like happens like with Mina and where she ends up, you know, shutting down any previous protocols or other organizations like that. And obviously, me, I don't mean Mina herself individually, but people like her, people in her position, people who do what she does for a living. And it's worth noting that Mina is portrayed as a genuinely nice person, someone who does have a moral code and is actually interested in doing a good job. That's good. It would have been very easy to make her just as cynical and bitter and horrible as everyone else. I mean, Lord knows that there's not a lot of good people in this game. I would say only two, really, Mina being one of them. Anyways, but yeah, like I said, Yancey is exactly the kind of reason why people like Mina exist. Marburg 
is then the consequence of people like Mina. He was someone who was burned, falsely declared as rogue because of the, the organization being shut down. So here he is, and he's got his own particular skills and his own particular setup. What the hell is he going to do with his life? Well, he goes off and forms his own thing with blackjack and hookers. <laughs> and that's, that's the direction he goes. What I find, I do want to say one other thing about Marburg really quick, by the way. Uh, Marburg, well, first of all, he's... But second of all, uh, I usually save the, the civilians, by the way, for anybody curious, because... Anyways, but he values loyalty. Now, when I say that, I want to stress the what I mean, because this is something that really struck me. When you are a super spy, and this is true in fiction and has been proven true in real life as well, but this really comes up a lot in fiction, because we can get into characters' heads in fiction. In fiction... If you are a spy, especially if you are a super spy, like you get to a certain level of spy-ness within the spying community, most spies have to have something that they cling to. Something that is a center point for their existence. You can't be a completely amorphous blob. All you'll do is, is splatter because of physics, right? And I know that sounds like a weird analogy, but hear me out. You need a cup, or you need a bowl, or you need a basin, or you need... You know, a pump or a capsule, something to give that amorphous blob feeling. So you may change your feelings, emotions, masks, d uh, dialect, visual appearance, uh, types of missions you accept, all the things that you're willing to change about yourself, just, you know, left and right, left and right, to try and make it so that you are a better spy and you can do your job better. These people need something to center themselves, otherwise they just spiral wildly out of control. In fact, I actually have a theory that Heck was someone who did that. You know, someone who just didn't have something to center himself, and he just, whoo! Although I've heard the theory before that Heck is someone who actually isn't a spy, who was just crazy enough then thought he was a spy enough to basically make it happen. I'm not sure. What do you guys think about him? I don't want to call him Steve, though, because he might kill me. I need my fingers. Um... But I mention this because this is what Marburg has. His thing is one shtick that helps to center him and keep him focused and give him form, to continue my analogy, is loyalty. Now, in his case, it's funny because his loyalty is blind. In fact, it, you have to do very specific circumstances to get him to renounce his loyalty to Leyland towards the end of the game. Or you can just kill him, of course. But for in every other way, he demonstrates this loyalty extensively and constantly. Again, even to the point of stupidity. Now, I don't really think that's inaccurate because, again, to him, loyalty is the only baseline. It's the only thing that he, he finds to be true. Now, to explain what I mean by that, this is a part of logical deduction. I know this is going in a weird direction, but hear me out because I, I was really thinking about this the whole time through. You have to have a baseline. If you're going to decide anything, if you're going to understand anything, you have to establish what is true first. Once that is established, then you can determine other things. Now, most real people in real life don't think about these things all the time because most of the things that we accept are things that are already established as true. Things like gravity, things like mass, things like math, right? These are things that we already know as true. But when you're at this level of spyness, I mean, yeah, gravity exists, but what about something more intangible? Something like, like uh, honor or duty or responsibility or money or wealth or power or whatever it is. Something has to keep them centered. Something has to be that baseline by which they can judge everything else. And again, a lot of the spies in this game, and, and Marbert is the perfect example, just have that one thing. And in his case, it's loyalty. So even if loyalty, he sees signs and inferences that loyalty is not absolute, that it isn't the thing that he adheres to, he still clings to it because if he doesn't have that 
what the hell does he have exactly? Right? You can kind of see how this is a, a defining part of his character. Now, this brings me to my next two characters I want to talk about, Z and Scarlet. Now, Z, I have so much trouble pronouncing that for some reason. Z, well, first of all, she comes across as a typical Bond henchman or goon squad member, if you will, to, if you want to go with the Metal Gear Solid route. You know, she's um, not quite superhuman, but really good in a fight. Has a very big gun, an M60, if I'm not mistaken. And really likes to be aggressive and violent and uh, is intensely sexual. So it's also extremely easy to flirt with her and also to be flirted at by her, even if you don't want her to, which, which is what happened to me, by the way. But I bring her up because what's her shtick? Well, it's very obvious, isn't it? For her, it's enjoyment. For her, the fact that she derives enjoyment from what she does is all she really needs. It's basically a pseudo-hedonistic perspective. And you'll notice, by the way, that she presents herself with the facade. Everyone in this game has a facade, of course. The facade of being professional, decent, commander, etc. But the more you get to know her, the more you, you get through there and peel down the layers, the more you realize that she really is basically a monster of her own of her sort. I don't mean like a completely evil monster. I mean, actually, so I guess I shouldn't use the word monster. Let's just call her a beast. She is a ravenous beast who likes rampaging and destroying and eating and just... And the more you get to know her, the more you know that, which is funny because that then leads us to Scarlet. Scarlet Lake is the total inverse of this. She is someone who comes across as bubbly and happy and flirty as hell. And oh my god, yeah. Bow with the hip. Um, and of course, she isn't any of that. The more you get to know about her, the more you understand her and delve into her, the more melancholy she is, the more subdued she is, the more you see that this is someone who really is actually probably an introvert who just has enough control over herself to present herself as if she is an extrovert. She's also far more professional and arguably far better at just killing, at least precision killing. She's far better of a scalpel, whereas Z would be, you know, Kong hammer. But I bring Scarlet up in particular, because obviously she works for Leyland, duh. She is so easy, so easy to convince to leave Leyland that obviously loyalty isn't her shtick. And money isn't either, because, again, she's probably getting paid exceptionally well. So what does that leave for someone like Scarlet? What's her thing that she clings to? If I was to say, I would actually say it is professionalism. Uh, forgive me for borrowing the quote, but a pro is not someone who gets themselves killed for their job. That's just a fool. In other words, a pro is someone who behaves professionally, someone who acts professionally. Someone who doesn't need to kill 15 people to kill one because they're good enough. And I think Scarlet, this is just my take on it, of course, but I think Scarlet derives a tr tremendous amount of enjoyment from basically the level of competency that she can accomplish from the act, acts itself, right? That's just my take on it. I also, I also mentioned Heck here in my notes, and all i got to say about Heck is, what the hell is his deal? <laughs> He's actually probably one of the most interpretive characters in the entire work. I would love... I, I, I don't even know what to say about him. I'd love to hear what you guys think about Heck. Uh, as I said, I already gave my theory that he has nothing. He is a truly amorphous blob, and so his one thing doesn't exist. So he's just... And that's the consequence of it. He's still very good at his job. You know, a blob can form a lot of shapes. 
believe it or not, I don't have much else to say about this game. I could, I could talk about the plot, the Cold War thing, but I currently talked about that. I could talk about the nature of how things almost developed into World War III and how horrible that is, but I don't really feel like there's much to say there. As I already said, the main character himself is mostly decided based on you, so I don't have much to say about that. Again, there's so much of this game that is... Oh, there's a word for it. It's not interpretive. It's uh, uh, determinative. Or determinative. It's determinative, I think. I can word, I think. I've Englished before. It, so much of this game is determinative based on your choices, based on what you do, based on how you do it, based on where you go with it, that it's hard for me to really nail down much else other than talking about the characters, the tone, the setting, and the plot, like I already just have. I did enjoy this game, I swear, and I hope you guys enjoyed. I'll see you next time.